to <clears throat> welcome to mormon book reviews where an evangelical encounters the restoration i'm your host stephen pinecker and i'm very excited about this panel that uh we've assembled today but before we get started i just want to remind you that the september book giveaway is going on right now and this uh month's uh, book is a timeline of joseph smith's prophecies his prophecies fulfilled by brian stutzman brian stutzman is a good friend of mine and he is a bishop at a singles ward in at BYU Idaho in Rexburg, which I imagine almost all of them are singles wards, <laughs> being all of their young people. But Brian stopped at my studio and was gracious enough to give me two copies of this book. So we're giving away two copies in the month of September. In the description is uh, my email, mormonbookreviews at gmail.com. Make sure you put in the subject heading September book drawing, and make sure you also give me your full name and address in the email itself. Now, I'm really excited about this because you know folks i i have a lot of i have a very diverse audience and i have very diverse guests and it's actually been a while since i you know i don't have the evangelicals on super frequently but i do and i think it's important that we hear this aspect uh of the restoration as well because this is a really fascinating book that just came out it's called responding to the mormon missionary message uh, confident conversations with mormon missionaries and other latter-day saints now what makes this group so interesting with the exception of Kyle is that these four gentlemen were actually all uh, raised Latter-day Saints and served missions so this is a book for people uh how do evangelicals engage Mormon missionaries when they knock on the door so I think that's really good I like that it's you guys also tell your stories in the books as well so you're personalizing it and everything like this now this is the thing a lot of you Latter-day Saints who watch my program are like why would you have people ex-Mormons on your program? And I understand, you know, of course, I've had John DeLynn, I've had Sandra Tanner, you name them, they've all been on my program, you know. Um, and it's because these are also voices. Uh, people who have left also are part of the conversation that the Restoration is having. And speaking of uh, conversations that the Restoration is having, I just want to mention that um, Ross Anderson has actually written two books. And I want to thank Zonderman for sending me these copies. Uh, Understanding the Book of Mormon. Actually, this one I had in my collection for years. This is really good. And also, uh, Zondervan sent me this book, Understanding Your Mormon Neighbor. And I think this is a really good book. Ross, I, and I also just want to thank you personally for, first of all, you're the editor of this book. But I also want to thank you for um, my friendship that I've had with you. You've kind of been counseling me. Now, I'm going to introduce the panel to everybody here in a second. But I just want to say, Ross, I feel like you know, there, I, I can be critical of some apologetic organizations, uh, Christian apologetic organizations, that I feel sometimes are a little bit unfair uh, and unchristian in the way that they engage the restoration. I always have gone to people and said, I, I endorse Ross Anderson and what he's doing. Um, and Ross, maybe just tell me, in, what is your ministry all about? What, 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 are, you, what are you doing? Yeah, th thanks, Steve. I appreciate that. So, when I, after I left the LDS church in my college years, you know, I took a couple of years, but I found a home, a new spiritual home. And so I'm a pastor actually at, at, a, at a church in Utah, uh, semi-retired kind of, but I'm also doing some things on the side that are more regional. And a big part of that, uh, what I'm trying to do through my ministry is help churches, Christian churches, evangelical churches understand the culture that we live in. If you were a, a Christian missionary and you went to Thailand or Romania or somewhere, you would study the culture and you'd understand how to communicate in that culture, how to get along, how to understand the culture, what drives people, what uh, how people tick. So I said, look, I've thought about 
because of my background, I understand this culture. And I've lived in Utah for over 40 years. I understand this culture. So I'm trying to help new churches come out and, and pastors and ministry come out. But also one of the things that we're trying to do is, is with, with the, the number of people who are leaving the LDS church right now, that uh, we're trying to help them not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're trying to help them to find, to transition into a different kind of faith, maybe. You know, maybe they have reasons why uh, Mormonism didn't work for them, um, whatever that might be. And, and that's, that's you know, I don't have anything to do with that, really. But but I can help them to find out, hey, there's maybe uh, still a way for you to still follow Jesus um, outside of your historic roots. And, and we'd like to see you give that a try. So we try to help people understand, you know, all the emotional dynamics the relational dynamics the worldview changes and things that happen so we're that's one of the things that we're doing here in utah right now yeah and just it's interesting because you know i have a lot of people that come to me they say my shelf is broke um about a year and a half ago and i'm really struggling uh, to put the pieces back together and your channel steve gives me hope that i can believe in god again now, this is, and I'm hearing from also, this is not just LDS. This is people from all different faith traditions are telling me this. And and and, and, and also there's other op groups like Thrive that John Dillon kind of helped start, which is kind of a secular alternative to church. And so that's, some people have chosen to go the atheist route or the secular route. Um, but for those of you who have, are, are leaving the church, and again, I am not here to tell people to leave the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is not what this channel is all about. But for those of you who are having faith struggles and still want to believe, have a faith um, after, if, if you do leave the church, uh, Ross is a, a person you should check out. Now, we've had a long-winded introduction here, but I want to introduce my very special co-host, Dr. Kyle Bashirs. You're out in, where is it, Mo Mobile, Alabama? Mobile, Alabama. That's right. On the Gulf Coast, all the way at the bottom of the state. Now, Kyle is uh, also uh, a scholar within the Mormon community. And uh, your specialty, well, just tell them about what is your specialty in the Mormon community scholarship-wise? Yeah, so I studied the history of a group that broke away from the main LDS tradition in 1844 under the leadership of James Jesse Strang, who declared himself prophet and started a uh, colony on Beaver Island and was assassinated in 1856. He brought forth scriptures, saw angels, had the Urim and the Thummim, all of it. So it's kind of a really interesting um, branch of the restoration that I study. It is fascinating. And you know, my engagement with the, what they call themselves Mormons or members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, capital D, um, yeah. I've had the opportunity to engage many of them and I find them to be lovely folk. And I think you've had similar experiences with that as well, Kyle, right? I've only had positive experiences with those folks. Yep. And so, uh, and actually, as I've studied uh, the Strangite movement and even James Strang, uh, you know, like I tell people, I said, you know, I, I always had this uh, affinity for Joseph Smith. I felt like there were a lot of commonalities and I felt uh, something very familiar with Joseph. Um, you know, I tell people we would have been at least would have been frenemies back in the day, maybe friends. I don't know. But we would have been uh, good buds because there's a, there's a lot of Joseph Smith that resonates with me. And I after reading about James Strang, I'm like, man, what a complex, fascinating, interesting person that I've really grown to kind of learn to respect. What about you, Kyle? He's uh, he's enigmatic. I mean, the second you think you figured him out, uh, you discover something that throws you off the trail. Um, so he's a, a figure in Mormon history that is, uh, I think, going to take a lifetime to, <laughs> to even begin to understand. 
Exactly, exactly. So, and of course, there's a lot of biographies out there about James Strang. Most of them are garbage, just so you know, unfortunately. Uh, Vicky Speaks uh, put out a great book. What do you recommend people read if they want to know about it? Yeah, there we go. Yeah, uh, if you'd like to, to know about James Strang, I would recommend Vicky Clevery Speaks, God Has Made Us a Kingdom. Yes. So that make sure you go with that one and not these popular ones that they're there just to make a quick buck. So now, okay, now we, I've got some interesting people here. Now, Paul, you and I have actually, what's so cool about you is we have a history that goes over two years. I had maybe a hundred subscribers and you uh, had me come on your program, Outer Brightness. Um, I just want to thank you. Uh, first of all, I, that always meant a lot to me. I was the first time I ever was a guest on a podcast and I really felt that you and Matthew blessed me. Um, by having me on your program. So welcome back to the program, Paul. Hey, thanks, Steve. Yeah, we had you on Out of Brightness. Gosh, it's been a while ago now. And you, we came on, you invited us on your show as well. Um, so yeah, we've got a podcast relationship going back a few years. We talk via messenger and um, just have enjoyed my relationship with you. So thanks again. And then uh, Corey, uh, you're with Ratio Crystal uh, Christi Ministries, right? And I make sure I get to say that right. Ratio Christi. Okay. See, I'm not really good with my Latin or anything like that. Uh, tell us a little, just give us a little background on, on yourself. Just introduce yourself to the audience and what is your group all about? Sure. So the ministry that I lead is on over 100 college campuses. We have a professor's division, a high school division, and uh, we equip people, uh, professors and students with historical, philosophical, and scientific reasons for following Jesus. Uh, so we engage in you know, hot topics, generating more light than heat is our hope, but uh, wanting to put Christ first, and that's what Ratio Christi means, is the reason of Christ. Uh, my background, and just to be clear for the audience's sake, um, the four of us that are guests on here were not all former LDS missionaries. So six of the eight who contributed to the book were. Uh, Ross and I did not serve LDS missions, uh, we were both uh, pastors, uh, we were both professors, and um, I was at Indiana University and Purdue University, for example. Uh, but I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, as a seventh generation Mormon, and my ancestry goes back to um, 1836, six years after the publishing of the Book of Mormon. Uh, they were all led to become true believers. And William Law, who was the second counselor to Joseph Smith, baptized my whole family. And then there's a whole uh, history there of the very first and highest level ever splinter group that happened at that time. And my seventh gen went one way with the laws and sixth gen the other way, took five wives, 36 children later, went uh, to the land of Zion in Utah. And uh, I'm a descendant of that. So that was my background kind of growing up in Mormonism until my conversion in 1988. Okay, so our final uh, panelist is Joel, and I want you to pronounce your last name because people butcher my name all the time, and I, I want you to make sure we get it right so I can get it right too. And tell us a little okay, bit about I'm, yourself. I've had a lifetime of that too. Uh, it's Favre. <laughs> and um, yeah, I I think I told you before, um, my father's a convert. Uh, my mom is descended from Mormon pioneers who came over from uh, England when Joseph Smith first sent missionaries over there. Um, and I served a mission in North Carolina from 2004 to 2006. And uh, if you were to talk to any of the missionaries who served with me, um, they would probably tell you that I was um, I was Mr. Rules, Mr. Dedicated. So 
coming out of the LDS church was um, a, a tough journey for me. Um, like, uh, like has been said, it, it was a struggle not to throw Christ out with the bathwater. So, okay. So, yeah. And that's, and that is an interesting challenge that happens here. So Kyle, um, uh, we talked yesterday and I, I said, I want you to ask the first question. So uh, question away, Kyle. Sure. Um, I, I book them out responding to the Latter-day Saint message as evangelicals. You know, um, the thing I'm reminded of when I saw that that book was coming out was Ecclesiastes 12.12, the making of many books, there is no end, because I felt like I had just read one that was similar in content published a few years before, and then now I have another one <laughs> that I have to catch up and read. So my first question was, uh, and in fact, Ross, you 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 edited this one too, is that right? Or uh, uh, no, contributed I didn't to have it, any... contributed to it. Uh, no, I don't think so. There's Corey, I... Corey. Yeah, Corey did, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess my first question was, uh, what sets this book apart from other books that are related in this kind of subfield of a genre? And why I know, and then what inspired you to write it? Uh, well, so it was something I had in mind for quite a long time. There was another similar book, uh, Leading Mormonism: Why Four Scholars Changed Their Minds, that I co-edited and authored with Lynn Wilder and a couple others. Um, this one was one that um, really it wasn't one that I could qualify for in terms of being a former LDS missionary. Uh, I could for the other one being a former insider who didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater as so many do, uh, continued to follow Christ and yet became an academic. Um, this one was one that I thought was highly strategic and needed, absolutely unique. There's nothing like this on the market uh, because the, the growth movement for the LDS church is their uh, group of, they're, they're, more, they're missionaries. And as one apostle recently said, projecting that by the end of this year, uh, between teaching and um, service missionaries, they'll have 100,000 LDS missionaries. Most of the people that they reach are from uh, Christian backgrounds. And so a lot of people that are going into Mormonism are coming from that. And in my mind, wanting to stop the bleeding there, and at the same time, uh, thinking highly strategic that... Um, going after uh, in good dialogue with LDS missionaries, we had a chance to expose them by training people on what their message is straight from the horse's mouths, from those who uh, fulfilled their two-year call as a missionary. Uh, we have six of them in the book. I wanted to be able to have something that would equip uh, the average Christian uh, to be able to engage intelligibly and with grace uh, the LDS missionary in hopes that, frankly, we could lead other LDS missionaries to Christ as the six contributing authors in the book have done. Ross, you want to chime so, in on that? Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me add something. To, I, I think part of the backdrop of this conversation today is that um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS movement, and the Evangelical Christian movement have a, have one thing in common. They have maybe several things in common, but one thing that we have in common is that both are exclusivistic faiths. 
And so, you know, both of both of them are seeking converts, are seeking people to see. I believe that the way I understand reality, I, I you know, I have some humility about that, but I believe that that's the ult ultimately an appropriate and fitting way to understand reality. Then it's changed my life and changed changed other people's lives. And the LDS missionaries who came to my house and that had dialogue with this summer believed the same thing about their about their claims. And so. Um, really, it's a way to say, hey, how can we do better at having this conversation so that so that Christians don't uh, don't just not not know how to answer the things that Latter-day Saint missionaries are saying, but also we're saying, how do we treat them better than evangelicals have historically treated Latter-day Saint missionaries? How do we have a more a civil, congenial conversation? And so really, it's a sense that, you know, the church has sent out 65,000 proselytizing missionaries right now, and they don't have any qualms about converting people out of other religions. They don't have any qualms about converting people out of my church, for example. And so I say, well, let, let's let's even the playing field a little bit. It's not like a competition. It's not like we're duking it out or something like that. But let's say, hey, wouldn't it be possible for LDS missionaries to also consider uh, what might be a better truth claim or a better way of living. And so we wanted to equip people to have that actual two-way dialogue, and not just a one-way, but a two-way dialogue between um, their faith and the faith of the people who are out there, you know, uh, seeking to convince them of something else. Okay. You know, uh, uh, Kyle and I have discussed this, is that, you know, neither one of us have a Latter-day Saint background. And uh, so we are approaching this maybe a little bit looking from a different prism than people who have are ex-Mormons. And I was I was the I kind of look at it this way. <clears throat> you know, I'm from the Midwest and there's a large evangelical population in the Midwest, but there's also a large Catholic population, especially in Northwest Indiana, which is kind of like I tell people it's like where it's it's as Roman Catholic as Boston and as evangelical as Tulsa. And so you have this really interesting in, in, intermixing going on in that particular area. And what's so fascinating to me is if you go to almost any megachurch in, in, um, in the Midwest and you ask a raise of hands, how many of you were raised Catholic? Often the majority of the people in that church will raise their hand. And so I find that to be very interesting. But I also have found, for me, and this is just my perspective, most Christians that I know don't really have a problem with the Catholic Church or consider Catholics to be Christians or, or, or at the very minimum, aren't anti-Catholic. But I find that the people who are most anti-Catholic are those who converted out of Catholicism into evangelicalism. And so I just want to hear, you know, especially there are two missionaries here, Paul and Joel. Um, is it, sometimes I feel like people who have left Mormonism and have become evangelical Christians tend to be very anti mormon and they bring that to the table and 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 i want to more so than maybe i would be right because i didn't come out of it right so i, sure. I so 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 we're all kind of viewing it from different prisms i want my two missionaries to maybe just discuss that a little bit paul you want to go first sure yeah it's, it's a good observation i think there's some truth in it um on our podcast we try not to be that way we try to be a welcoming place we've had a number of latter-day saints on uh to have discussions with them um, I think, you know, as I think back to, you know, what Joel said about his transition out being very difficult, mine was as well. It's a challenge to you, uh, to your identity when you right. reach that, reach that place where your shelf breaks and you're facing that realization that, wow, everything I believed 
up until this point in my life is not true and I can't trust it anymore. Um, and so I think that if you're thinking about things from a, from an emotional and a psychological perspective, I think it might be natural for uh, people who go through that uh, and are in, in kind of a stage of anger uh, to come across strident and um, to, to be able to be labeled anti-Mormon. Um, if I had come, if I had started a podcast in, you know, 2010, when I was first leaving the LDS church, you probably would have found more of that in, in my life than you do, you know, eight years later, when I start thinking about starting a podcast and I've been to a Christian seminary and gotten an MDiv. Um, there's been a lot of processing of the emotions, um, my own beliefs in those eight years that have transpired, you know, between uh, leaving and then starting to think about what does my ministry to Latter-day Saints look like. So I think, I guess I'm just trying to say, you know, for those Latter-day Saints who look at those who leave and who are angry, um, I do understand that. And like, you know, your scripture would even say, you know, that they've, they've lost the spirit. Um, they've been given, given over to the buffetings of Satan. And, and you can see their anger and, and probably justify your beliefs about them being uh, in the in the grips of Satan uh, by, by their anger. But I would just ask you to be a little bit more charitable towards them. Um, Cause as Steve mentioned, you know, anytime someone comes from one faith to another uh, it's natural to look backwards. And sometimes that looking backwards results in anger. So I just ask people to be charitable all around. Joel. Um, yeah, it's uh, it can be, it could be difficult. Um, you look at uh, some stuff that's come from the LDS leadership about uh, those that leave. Uh, things have been thrown around that uh, still circulate like uh, they're lazy learners or they lack faith. You know, they lack particle of faith. Um, and for people like me, who um, it was my entire life, you know, I dedicated everything. Um, when you know, my wife didn't want to go to church. I was dragging us to church. You know, I was up every Sunday. I was making sure we were paying tithing. Um, and I think there's just a, uh, I think there's a propensity to go eye for an eye when someone leaves, because there's a lot of commentary in the LDS church about uh, the attitudes of those that leave. Um, like I say, um, it's it's not new to hear that someone who leaves the church um, never truly believed in the first place, you know, or, uh, you know, they just didn't really have any faith. Um, whereas someone like me who wanted to go to the temple every week um, to do initiatories or sealings, um, you know, someone who loved going to the temple, loved attending church, wanted to teach classes, you know, raised all my kids in the faith, um, stuff like that really stings, you know, because it's too generalized and doesn't take in the scope of what actually happens when you're challenged with everything you know and feel secure in possibly being wrong or false. And um, it doesn't lead to productive conversations because it gives them an easy jumping off point where they can say, ah, oh, they were just lazy. Oh, they just, you know, weren't faithful in the first place. And it doesn't take in the complexity of what actually happens when you face that challenge and actually leave. 
Okay. Okay. You know, Ross, uh, in your opening chapter, you referred to uh, Mormonism as a culture, um, as a people group. Maybe just el elaborate on that a little bit too. Yeah. Thank you. So um, this has been, you know, I went to, to theological seminary. I went to LDS seminary too, by the way, but I also went to evangelical seminary as an adult. And I was studying uh, cross-cultural ministry. I was think I thought God was going to lead me and my wife uh, to some third world country somewhere. Are we allowed to say third world anymore? To some two-thirds world country uh, right. where you know nobody knows Jesus or whatever. And so I I studied uh, the principles of culture and how to communicate cross-culturally and contextualize. And then God led me to Utah, which. You know, as you, and as that opened my eyes, say hey, it's a different culture here. And I had grew up, grew up in that culture. Culture is really simply a way of, it's a shorthand for a way of saying the way we do things, the way that we learn from our associations and family and, and, and social networks to do things. So, for example, when I was in Malaysia a few years ago, uh, the culture says nobody has to teach you this. The culture teaches you that you don't eat food with your left hand. Well, that's because your left hand is used for personal hygienic purposes. And to if you if, if I was a, as an outsider to grab a, a ball of rice and stuff it in my face with my left hand, that would just totally gross everybody out. And I'd be seen as being an idiot. And so nobody they had to teach us that because we weren't in, involved in the culture. We could make a mistake. So because Mormonism has some unique cultural elements, there are ways that people think about life or the short cuts that people take about for example um how do you make spiritual decisions in the lds uh tradition that's really different from the evangelical tradition because there's no mass evangelism meetings and altar call and so forth so how does a person make spiritual decisions how does a person decide who is telling the truth or who is credible those are all cultural questions and lds the lds has elements of culture that i think that to communicate clearly and respectfully um, and to avoid some unnecessary uh, pitfalls and problems between people, I, I felt like it was important for us who represent the evangelical message to Latter-day Saints to understand elements of their culture that could be uh, helpful or that could be hindering in our in our open communication. Okay. Hey, Kyle, do you have anything you want to chime in here? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that approach, Ross. Um, and I think it's a, a long time coming uh, that evangelicals would begin to see um, the world that Latter-day Saints, especially in Idaho and Utah, live in is, is more of a culture than it is historically, how evangelicals have framed it as a cult. Uh, popularly, um, Walter Martin in the 1960s added uh, Latter-day Saints and Mormons as uh, members of a cult. And so um, pivoting away from that kind of approach, I think not only, you know, let's be frank, loves our neighbor as ourselves in a much better way than perhaps we had done in the past, but it also gets to, um, it, it gets to an understanding that um, it's not just beliefs that you're engaging with Latter-day Saints. It's also practices. It's also family. It's also employment. Um, you, you, with I think I think for us evangelicals, when we when we think about the experience of a person converting from one 
thing to another. It's Baptist to Methodist or charismatic to Presbyterian. Uh, and those are comparatively short leaps to take between leaving the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and entering into uh, a Latter-day Saint or uh, into an evangelical context. Anybody want to pick up on on those thoughts? Yeah, I think it's interesting as I, you know, Steve kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, there are people also leaving evangelicalism, you know, there's the whole evangelical movement. Um, and it's been interesting to me to watch some of that as someone who went through a transition out of Mormonism. Um, and I would, you know, to kind of comment on Ross's points about culture and, and what you were saying, Kyle, is that I, I think like when someone is maybe a pastor in an evangelical church, so they've made it their employment, um, they've made it their body of study for, you know, a number of years through schooling. Um, that's kind of akin to someone leaving the LDS faith in terms of the the level of commitment to the culture, the level of uh, commitment of one's life. And so I see I see a lot of similarities when I see kind of ex-pastors talk about their experiences. Um, and so, again, I, I just would, you know, encourage charity on the part of everyone to as we, you know, we all kind of work through this as an American culture, um, what we see happening. So. You know, I want to speak to that, too. You know, I was an atheist for like 12 years. And I still kind of still think like an atheist because it's I, I just kind of retrained the way I thought about things, you know, um, studying science and biology and how to think critically and rationally and stuff like this. And one of the biggest issues I had leaving the the evangelical fold, if you will, is that friends and family all had their reasons why I left, but they never came to me and asked me, why did you leave? Uh, and I think that that and, and so people will kind of just will impose a certain narrative on you. Well, this is why they left. And you had alluded to that earlier, Joel, too, like well, they're a lazy learner or they want to sin. They want to do this kind of stuff. I think we need to be more charitable. I'm, I'm, I'm calling on people who are believers, whether you're Latter-day Saint or you're evangelical, rather than impose a narrative on a person, you need to go and talk with them and ask them. Why did you leave? I often think the reason why people don't want to do that is they're afraid to get hear their actual story because they their their faith might be challenged. And this, I'm speaking both evangelicals and uh, uh, Latter-day Saints here. This is, I'm not I'm not just speaking to one group because I think there's commonalities in both. Maybe speak to that. Well, I think, uh, Steve, you've got a good point. Uh, we we like to tell people we have two ears and one mouth for a reason so that we listen more. Uh, we want to understand, we want to empathize with the person we're in dialogue with. Um, and if we are trying to persuade them to what we think is true, we want to meet them in the area where their real issues lie. Um, in in my case, and you know, empathizing with what was said earlier with some, a lot of people would say that you were never a true believing Mormon. Um, and I doubt many people at the age of eight wrestled like I did uh, because I struggled with the conundrum that I still think is one of the most salient doctrinally deviant positions that the LDS faith has over and against historic Christianity. At that time, I knew that baptism would be regenerative. I needed to have my sins washed away. I wanted to spend eternity with Heavenly Father. Um, and 
I knew that no unclean thing can enter. And yet at the same time, uh, I was taught, try, try your best and God will make up the rest. And so I just, you know, at the time figured I would beat the system. And unlike other eight-year-olds who just capitulated and got baptized, I did not get baptized. I was going to wait until I was 88 years old on my deathbed and get into celestial glory. <laughs> um, and I, I thought, what if I, what if I fail to get baptized and I get hit by a semi truck before that time frame? What's going to happen next? And so I did when I was age nine. You know, I went through my own adolescent story and so forth, where I, you know, uh, messed around in ways that I should not have. But when I finally converted to Christ. Um, and the ultimate motivation behind any ministry that I have with LDS people today, including my own family, uh, it's because I finally heard a gospel that I had never, ever picked up on. And it was vastly different. And so we use the same words, J-E-S-U-S, -S, just as you have a mom and I have a mom and we spell it frontwards and backwards the same, but it's not the same mom. And as a philosophy and comparative religions professor, uh, I would always be challenged on where to put Mormonism because it is so radically different. Um, it is spelled G-O-D. It is spelled J-E-S-U-S -S when we use those terms. But it is really not the same one, um, not even close. And so I think it is correct to focus on the cultural aspects and to realize that each of us are human beings and we should be respecting and loving each other. Yet at the end of the day, um, you know, the first missionary discussion that LDS missionaries lead is designed to create the need for a living prophet for a restoration predicated upon all other Christendom being false. So their entire introduction is to say that historical biblical Christianity is lost and it needs a restoration. Our take is no, let's reconsider that and why the majority report still affirms that. And you don't need to, if you come to the place where the eight of us have in this book, um, that the LDS church is not true. We can still be loving and friends, but we do need to consider these truth claims about who God is, how man gets to heaven, both of which find their segue in the person and work of Christ. Yeah, and that's that's great, Corey. And and I th I find it interesting that your experience is is similar to what I recall learning about Constantine and his conversion. Right, that he waited until the end of his life to uh, <laughs> accept baptism for very similar reasons to why you were thinking you would. Um, and and Latter Day Saints, uh, you know, including James E. Talmadge, look at that and and kind of deride it. Right, like why would you wait? Um, but you're right. There's a, there's a difference in the gospel, but we, we, we use the same words. Um, you know, my chapter is on, uh, the, the lesson from the LDS missionaries called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, um, I very much wrote my chapter narratively because I wanted to bring, uh, evangelical Christians, uh, who might be reading this and, and, and looking to become equipped to talk to Latter-day Saints into the heart of a Latter-day Saint who's going through that struggle, through that faith transition, through an actual conversion to Christ. You know, as Kyle mentioned, a lot of the, a lot of the materials that were previously developed uh, for uh, similar means, similar reasons, um, were really aimed at the audience of evangelicals and, and kind of keeping evangelicals in a certain mindset about Mormons. Um, 
what we're trying to do, uh, what we hoped to do with this book is uh, encourage a more positive dialogue. And, and I thought it most effective to, to tell my story, uh, both for evangelicals so that they would understand um, how, those, how the terms are different, how a Latter-day Saint would hear a term like justification or sanctification, and how they would think differently about those terms because of their background, because of their culture, because of their theology than a Christian would. And those those key differences make it hard to communicate um, effectively. And so my story goes into that. Um, and I just think it's really important also for, you know, I, I wrote with a Latter-day Saint audience in mind as well, um, so that they would understand if they're reading the book, uh, what it's like for someone who's going through that, who is from among their own ranks, um, and see, you know, what that transition can look like and, and how difficult it is. And and how there there are those challenges of, of of vocabulary and trying to understand. I really struggled to understand um, language, the language of sanctification, uh, versus you know the way the, that a Latter Day Saint would talk about that enduring to the end. Um, it's not the same thing. There there are key differences between what Latter Day Saints mean by enduring to the end and what Christians uh, look forward to in sanctification and ultimate glorification for Latter Day Saints enduring to the end uh, will result in, uh, if you endure to the end, the, the, the if is key, if you endure to the end will result in your ultimate sanctification and glorification. But if you don't, it will not. And their, their scriptures teach that pretty clearly. Uh, whereas for, for evangelical Christians, um, all of our faith and trust is in Christ and the merits of, of him crucified. And so we await sanctification, uh, although we're still uh, in sin and 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 beset by sin, we await that sanctification, and we and we look to work and allow the Holy Spirit to to work within us to bring us to that that full sanctification and glorification. But it's not a question of whether it will. Uh, you know, we believe uh, Paul when he said in Philippians that he who began a good work in you will bring it through to completion. So uh, the 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 way this book is laid out is that the first two chapters are written by Corey and Ross. And then the rest of it is uh, based off, the chapters are based off of using the man, the missionary manual, Preach My Gospel. And these, the, each one of these uh, uh, chapters then deals with uh, particular things in that book. Before we get to actually talking about the essays, I wanted to make sure that everybody's, uh, does anybody else want to say anything, including you, Kyle, about what we just discussed? Oh, okay, so um, this this is really interesting. You know, Kyle, you and I have had some conversations about the essays themselves, and I, I just want to kind of maybe get your perspective overall, kind of give us your overall view of uh, the, the essays themselves and how they are written, and just kind, kind of give me some, give the, them some of your feedback. Yeah, so for me, this was essentially um, a, a handbook. Uh, a lot of the, the content was was fairly boilerplate in the sense that you stuck really closely to the Preach My Gospel manual, which I sensed was an intentional thing if every single um, essay uh, stuck to it, especially the back that the after Ross and Corey's chapters were over, which were kind of setting a framework or a different way to think about these uh, engagements, then the rest of them were kind of walking through uh, what an evangelical, the intended audience for this book would experience. Um, and so for that reason, it, it felt generally very straightforward. Um, it, it felt down to earth. Um, I, 
don't think it's going to be reviewed by like an academic or a scholarly <laughs> journal uh, cited in those kinds of works, but that did appear to be the intention anyhow. So no lost sleep over that. Um, for me, a drawback to that though is uh, that you you lose the word count or maybe even the motivation uh, to to provide additional context to provide additional context or or nuance around things. Uh, so, for example, I think, Corey, you brought up the great apostasy narrative um, and described it in a way that, um, yes, e even up until the 1980s and 1990s would have been pretty commonplace in LDS thought uh, coming from especially, you know, the kind of McConkie-esque uh, view mm -hmm. of Protestantism. I think we, being Protestant ministers, were still a part of the uh, temple endowment ceremony uh, as as tools of Satan um, back then. If I'm a tool of Satan, I am unaware of it presently. He hasn't told me that. Um, but uh, all that to say, it, this could maybe be an interesting question. Um, are Is the book readying uh, evangelicals to speak with Latter-day Saint missionaries today, like the 19-year-old kids that maybe are aware of uh, they sat through a religion 101 class at BYU and their professor was like, hey, look, the great apostasy narrative, uh, we're, it's, it's, it's not like your grandpa's great apostasy narrative. Um, there is truth, there is beauty, there is value. Uh, the Reformation wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I, I've been at BYU where I listened to a, uh, a, a, a Protestant uh, lecturer on um, the Reformation at the 500th year anniversary. And he just talked about sola fide and just justification by faith alone to a large Latter-day Saint audience and afterwards had a BYU professor affirm some of the things that he said. Um, so that that might be an interesting question or at least a question that I had when I was reading the book open to anybody. Well, that's an interesting, interesting point you make there. Um, you know, you might say if you get five different uh, LDS people, you get six different opinions. In fact, we've even had uh, opinions from the apostles toward the professors at BYU, uh, the academics. And so, you know, sometimes there's a disjunct. And, and the same thing would be true if you get, you know, five different evangelicals, you might get six different opinions on things too. Um, but I think, I think um, Kyle, the, the rudiments are still there. They're unchanging. You go back to the foundational story. There are two necessary and jointly sufficient conditions for this to get off the tarmac. And that is, there was a total apostasy, and now in the new Preach My Gospel, they've omitted the term uh, for audience understanding of the language, but there was a total falling away. And what that means is, not that there weren't Reformed Christians or Augustinian Christians or Christians for 2,000 years. It meant that no one has the proper priestly authority to function for God. And that has never, and I doubt will ever, change. Um, and then the other condition is, okay, so what? We're all destitute. No, there's been a restoration of what? That proper priestly authority. And so that's, I think that part will not change. And, and so you're right. There is, in a sense, cultural shifts that take place. There are fads. There are movements. There are differences of opinion. Uh, but I don't think you're ever going to lose that nugget that core going back to the foundational story yeah and interesting i would add this kyle i think your observation is really salient because 
about two or three weeks after we sent our manuscript to the publisher, the LDS Church released a new version of Preach My Gospel. And so we're interacting, and so we're scrambling to go, oh, no, no, did our book just suddenly become obsolete? You know, and, and so I spent a lot of time reading through the new version compared to the old version, compared to everything we'd said. And um, and it, it, in light of your, your observations, it would be interesting if you had a chance to read the new version. It's available um, digitally at uh, churchofjesuschrist.org. Did I get that right? Used to be mormon.org. But um, so the thing is that the, the core, so we said, okay, we're going to figure this out. The core content is the same, but it's framed in very different terms. It's framed mm -hmm. quite differently because I think this, so the original version that we've been working off of was printed in, it was released in like 2004. So about yeah. 20 year timeline. And so now 20 years later, I don't know who is, grappling with the new way to say it or whatever, but you've got the new version, a couple differences. It's really sensitive to, I think, where the 18, 19-year-old missionary is at today in their culture. And so, um, it's, and I think it's sensitive to the changes in probably American culture, pluralism and and so forth. And it's because now they don't change their claims, they change how they word their claims. And so instead of, in 2004, it was more like, uh, if you do this, then and then you, you need to do this, and if you don't do this, you won't, you know, experience everything God has in store. The new version is more like it, there's less of a sense of um, this, this sort of dogmatism. There's less of a sense of of a top down, like here's the here's the way it has to go. There's more of a sense it, it's invitational. It says here's yeah. how you can experience all the blessings God has for you. It's kind of like. You know, it's almost from I'm an old guy, I'm geezer. So it's you look at culture and say, well, all of our, all of our students in elementary school, they're no longer uh, expected to live up to a standard anymore. They're all just being coddled and nurtured along. And so that, that's how it feels in the new version, that it's very nurturing. It's very uh, invitational. It's, there's very little that says, here's what you got to do and you better do it or you're going to lose out. And so it's interesting how but what we did look carefully and say, OK, the all everything that's in the current version is still in the new version. All of the claims, the truth claims, all of the assertions are made. All the segments are there. Now they they um, conflated the last two lessons into one, so it's one really long lesson that our chapter four and chapter five, uh, or or verse the last two things deal with. But it's still the same, and so. I think you're right about how nuance enters in and how uh, perception has changed and so forth. But ultimately, we felt like the the bottom line truth claims um, and assertions of what has historically been the LDS gospel um, really haven't changed. Joel, you haven't talked much. I wanted to make sure that <laughs> uh, you have something to say about this as well. And you oh, did Corey the first and, lesson, I think, right? I did, yeah. Uh, Corey and Ross are just so good, I didn't want to interrupt them. Um, all the stuff they're saying is spot on. Um, yeah, I spent a lot of time um, trying to think of how to present the first lesson um, in a way that uh, an evangelical could understand um, how a current LDS person would see um, I guess an evangelical 
um, and also just try to help an evangelical understand um, as they're ministering to someone um, that's LDS, um, we we probably have the tendency to feel like we're just we're offering you salvation. You know, you can you can you know have peace with Jesus Christ and um, evangelicals that I know that don't know LDS people and are introduced to it, they think it's really open and shut. But uh, you're basically offering to take away um, someone that's LDS. You're offering to take away their culture, their family, their friends, and their salvation when you offer to have them leave the LDS church. Now, it's it's not always that harsh, but in the end, that's that's the challenge that they're having to face is in their mind. They're thinking, well, if I leave, I'm leaving all this behind. Um, also, to uh, talk about um, apostasy, in the end, I mean, yeah, I, I was in the MTC when they released Preach My Gospel. So that makes me feel really old that it was 20 years ago. But uh, when when we talk about an apostasy and a falling away, they may change the way that they have a conversation about it. But I guarantee they still quote Second Nephi at some point, which at a certain point, Nephi is told by an angel, there are two churches only. There's the Church of the Lamb of God and the Church of Satan. And I guarantee you that someone that's LDS is going to say, well, yeah, of course, we're, we're part of the restored church. We belong to the church of the Lamb of God. Okay, well, you know, if you want to make yourself seem Christian and you want to, you know, have a conversation with Christians, telling them straight out that they're part of the church of Satan may not be the best place to start, but, you know, it's, it's definitely still in there. And so while they may be changing the way that they approach things, the message is still going to be the same, that there is a falling away and that there needs to be something to repair that. So um, the, I think the leadership of the LDS church is very good at that. They, they are sensitive to cultural changes. Sometimes they come a little late to the party, but uh, they try really hard to keep the gospel um, as taught by the LDS church. Um, I, I want to say this in a way that's not too insulting, uh, but culturally irrelevant. Um, they they tend to um, tap dance around certain issues to make them seem like their doctrines or policies aren't as harsh as uh, they actually are in reality. So, yeah, sorry, a lot to say, but uh, that, those are the things that are running around. Kyle, Kyle, did you have something to say? Uh... Uh, no, I, I just okay. um, a lot of that I I enjoyed hearing. Um, Maybe one of the I, I think Ross's uh, observation about the the shift in engagement of Latter Day Saints to probably everybody but evangelicals in specific because we feel it is is becoming more um, invitational and um, I sense kind of a reverse side of that coin that um, would would cause a Latter Day Saint to think twice about joining the church. Um, it kind of like a disinvitation. So if the invitation is to something more. Uh, I've heard this language from Latter-day Saint leaders of if you leave the church, you're getting less. Um, and evangelicalism has been described as um, uh, by, I think he's a 70, as a piano without any of uh, the white keys, just the, the black keys. And you can only play 
chopsticks and only children play chopsticks. And my thought was, well, Jesus invited the little children, let them come to him. Like I'm happy with, <laughs> I'm happy with chopsticks. Um, but I, I, I think one of, one of the things, um, I, I don't know if it was brought up in the book and I, I don't think it, it was, but in, if anybody disagrees with this, um, please say so. Uh, in my engagement with Latter-day Saints, if I tell them, first and foremost, I'm an evangelical pastor, I can actually see them laying bricks in between me and them. And then there's a wall that goes up immediately. And anything that would, would there are very many people excluded from this, right? Especially like genuine friends that I have who are Latter-day Saints. So anything that I say after that is going through a firewall and is sometimes rejected uh, unintentionally because they're just assuming that I hate them. I think that they've put makeup on over their horns this morning, so I wouldn't see them. And the only thing I want for them to do is to just, their entire culture and religion and everything would just be wiped off the face of the earth. And no matter what I'm doing, it's some kind of devious, uh, deceptive roundabout way to, to get them into my church so that I can get more money. Um, there's a there's a bit of a uh, there can be there can be I want to say this very carefully with some Latter Day Saints uh, some persecution um, that that they feel is present no matter what and and for let's be very clear for very good reasons very good reasons starting at the earliest of the Latter Day Saint Church as a people that draw their identity and culture from a narrative um, non Latter Day Saint Christians have been um, uh, pretty aggressive, yep. uh, whether it's physically or relationally or socially or culturally or legally, right? So I, I get all that. Um, all that said, there's a very long preface and I apologize and I thank you for your patience. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I've learned as an evangelical is to drop the term Mormon. Uh, I'm very uh, careful with how I use it in scholarly work. I'll still continue to use it. Uh, in, in rare instances, I'm a member of the Mormon Historical or the Mormon History Association. Um, I've got an article coming out in the Journal of Mormon History. So there's there's pockets left where that's appropriate. And not every single person who identifies with the LDS Restoration is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints headquartered in Utah. I know that very, very well, and they're fine with the term Mormon. But the, the guys I and mean, the people, the guys and gals, I mean, these two guys that are coming to, to the door are going to be members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who might not enjoy or prefer that term Mormon. They, they want to hear being called a Latter-day Saint, and that's quickly becoming kind of a gauge to determine how far they want this conversation to go, or uh, it's a shortcut to does this person really respect me or want to get to know me. Um, throughout the book, Latter-day Saints are referred to Mormons. And so I was wondering if that was an intentional choice, an editorial choice. Maybe evangelicals don't know what a Latter-day Saint is, so we need to stick with old terminology. Um, just so if a Latter-day Saint picks this book up and reads it and has read Mormon for the 80th time, um, and it, it's kind of vexing, uh, maybe they'd have context around that. Yeah, this is a, that's a great question. This is a challenge. It was a challenge for us editorially. Partly because, um, well, you know, when when the when President Nelson uh, uh, issued that edict, um, it, it comes with well. There's so many layers of this. So I think Peggy Stack had did a good article on this in the Salt Lake Tribune. But um, there's a lot of layers to this. Part of it is our audience. We recognize I, my conversations I've had with 
with Christians who we hope evangelicals who will hope will buy the book. They're outside of Zion, the Utah or Idaho sphere. They they don't they don't know what Latter Day Saint means. And I, I floated that and I found out people, oh wait, what? And so there's a sense in which the audience, our audience, it engages them in terms of their knowledge and understanding. There's also a sense in which to say Church of Jesus Christ, which is the short version, you can't say Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints over and over and over and over again. Uh, it's stylistically, it's a, it's a brick. Uh, but to say Church of Jesus Christ, that's a truth claim. And I don't accept that truth claim. Um, so there's, a, there's another layer there. And so we use LDS, and actually we used LDS and Latter-day Saint in this book a lot more than I think the literature has has sustained in the past. So I think we're trying to be sensitive to that, but it's not a it's not a clean deal at all. And partly we're just saying um, that hey, there's a historic use of the word Mormon in in American culture, in American journalism that's acceptable. And and it's acceptable, you know, it, it broadly used. And so we're saying we're gonna we're gonna keep you know uh, using that for the for a variety of stylistic and di different reasons. Now, in Kyle, in my experience, I there are certainly in Utah here where I live, there certainly are people who take umbrage over the use of the word Mormon. And there's many other Latter Day Saints who I found active Latter Day Saints who just think it's a it's a tempest in a teapot. Um, you know, and so, and so that's it was a challenge to, to figure out like what to do with it. Yeah, and it's so it's a that's a good observation. Now, President Nelson is just turned ninety nine. We don't nobody knows how much longer he's going to have, and every president of the church, as they've ascended to their role, has chosen some element of focus that gives a like a mark to their their tenure. And so I think it's an open question whether the term Mormon is interdicted in the future or not. I don't know. I don't know the future. And so maybe it won't be, or maybe it will be. So um, those are all the factors that went into a complicated decision about a simple word. You know, I just, uh, it's so interesting to me because just so you know, I, I interact, look, I actually got into hot water with my stake president, my stake president, the local stake president <laughs> here. When I said Mormon, he's like, it's not Mormon, it's not Mormon. He's like, well, well, we since we buried a hatchet, we're friends, we're good. Uh, and I'm, I'm friends with everybody in the local ward here. Uh, and I'm going to have the local bishop, the Lakewood Ranch uh, bishop here in Florida on my program. And I, I want to say that, look, the Mormon missionaries, uh, members of Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, <laughs> I said Mormon, <laughs> the missionaries, the missionaries love me. I'm very good friends with all many of the missionaries in the Tampa uh, mission, uh, but also apparently my stuff is getting posted in uh, the Calvary, which is the uh, private Facebook group for Mormon missionaries. So mm -hmm. it's really fascinating, this connection that I've had with them. And see, this is, this is, this is where I'm kind of perplexed because I've had interactions with probably at least 10 missionaries who have come to my home. I feed them, I give them pizza, we talk. And the conversations I'm having with them are very unlike the conversations in this book. I almost feel that the mission, that this, this book is kind of boilerplate. You're just kind of dealing with the manual, which is fine. But the, the actual boots on the ground situation I think is a lot different. So when I'm having the missionaries over, and in one case, in some cases, in one case, we talked more about South Park than we did the gospel. 
you know, and, and, and also what I'm hearing is that I, I talk to missionaries throughout the country. They, they, they get in touch with me. I'm hearing what's happening. In some mission fields, they're wearing crosses now. In other mission fields in, in Europe, they're starting to allow them to wear beards. There's just like, there's this crazy things that are happening, this evolution that's happening so quickly on the ground. And I get to hear it in real time and actually talk to missionaries throughout the country and, and, get, and get this sense that I'm plugged into the mission field that I, I don't actually feel like this book feels... Uh, is actually res is actually reflective of what's actually happening right now on the mission field. This is not a critique. This is just my observation that I'm making. Uh, what do you guys say to that, Corey? Can Ross, I, uh, or Kyle? So, yeah, can I jump me. jump uh, really quick? Yeah. Sorry, the um, I, Matthew uh, Matt Wilder is that Micah's brother? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So um, uh, for listeners who don't know, that's a really famous story of a uh, Latter Day Saint convert. I, he converted while he was in his mission in Florida, came home, and then the rest of rest of the family generally followed him. Um, so uh, Matthew does actually make a bit of space for what you're talking about. Yeah, so there's the the Micah's most recent book. Um, Kyle, just me, his... Can I jump in one sec? So everybody yeah. calls him Matthew, but it's not Matthew. It's Matthias. So just Matt will do. So just a I'm little gonna... F, just a family FYI there. <laughs> yeah, I'll call him Matt because that is what he put down as his name. <laughs> so Matt, I sorry, Matt. Um, you can call me Carl instead of Kyle, and we'll be even. Um, Matt does make a little bit of of room for what you're what you're describing, uh, uh, Steve. Um, generally, I agreed with you. I just wanted to point this out because Matt's not here, and it, it came to mind. Um, he talks about his uh, mission. Um, it, it was at Denmark, I think it was overseas somewhere, and uh, in Europe, and, and he ends the chapter by talking about uh, these experiences that he would have with families that would invite them in, and ends the paragraph with this, a warm smile given, a cold beverage offered, or a lent ear could make all of the difference. Uh, I underlined that. It's so simple, but it's so true against the, uh, against kind of the, the, the handbook or manual style uh, that the that the rest of the book um, framed that quote, and I thought that was interesting. And I would add to that, yeah, that's he was the only one of the six former LDS missionaries that didn't write on the manual "Preach My Gospel." Each of mm -hmm, them, mm -hmm. one of the five uh, discussions, he was part of the first part of the book where Ross detailed about Mormon culture. And I talked about the internal culture, the psychology, the testimony, uh, the rock bottom, how do you know this is true? And then he gave a whole swath of what the LDS missionary life looks like from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed. And so that's all part of the external, internal, um, and sociological culture of uh, Mormonism and leading into the LDS missionary and then Here's the focus of the point of the book, and that is the LDS missionary discussions. And and Matt's chapter is so important because to an evangelical audience, when you say I went on a mission trip, well, what is or or, or I'm a missionary, right? Uh, what did you do? I spent a week and a half in Haiti. Like that's honest, to, honest to God. That's wonderful. I'm so glad. I'm glad you had that experience. Uh, I'm friends with a missionary who's been in Eastern Europe and now in Germany for like 15 years. Uh, so the gambit of what it means to be a missionary in evangelicalism is so different. Uh, so having that kind of insight and then knowing um, if a Latter-day Saint pair 
guys or gals come to your house like this is what they're experiencing you've been up from since seven they've been up since five uh like they've got a very regimented uh, and and they're probably exhausted um if you're willing and able be hospitable to them and, and that was one of the the central themes that i kept seeing over and over and over again at least coming from the experiential aspect the narratives and the stories that you were telling in this book that i appreciated so anybody want to speak to what I said, just how how my experiences, actual actual experiences with missionaries today seems to be different than what the how the book addresses it? Because I feel like if evangelicals are going to uh, engage Latter-day Saints, uh, I think we we have to do it on how things really are. I, I just talk to that and then I want to do a follow up. Yeah, let me jump in. I, I know I'm taking a lot of space here and I'll let you you guys answer because I just met with missionaries this summer. They came to my house. I said, "Oh, I guess, I guess I don't. If I don't want to be a hypocritical, I've got to probably have this conversation." No, I just really wanted to. I wanted to test our book, test our writing. And and Steve, you know, I don't see them as often as you do for sure. And you have a lot more interaction with them. But they wanted to get into the lessons. We did talk about life and stuff and their story. They wanted to get into the lessons, and they had the. And I agreed to read the things they asked me to read. Second Nephi. Um, that Joel mentioned earlier. And so that was all on the thing. And so um, now I learned that these guys, these individuals, had, there were two young men. They're so discrepant from their personality, their experience, et cetera. That was something that I thought was maybe we could have addressed that in a book that not everyone is going to be the same. But I felt like, at least in my limited experience, that the, the trajectory of the conversations was pretty well predicted by and, by the book and admittedly i have to say the mormon missionaries come here to learn about their church from me because they literally <laughs> they come and look at these bookshelves they're looking at the stuff they're like and they all get in they all get in, enchanted by this one the enchanter from the chick tracks uh you know this this is a piece of garbage by the way but uh but and that's what i see this is this is the kind of stuff this is the kind of stuff that evangelicals are learning about mormonism is through garbage like this which i right. renounce okay this is lies okay but the thing, but they all they all got a kick out of it because they realize that this, the the Mormon church the church that's being described in this comic book is is nothing like based in reality. It, it's literally as comical and how it addresses it. But this is the thing. It's, so I have all these fascinating conversations with Latter Day Saints. I literally talk to people throughout the world. I had just my episode that I came out on Tuesday was two return missionaries from Poland, and here we are having this conversation. And and the one guy's like a Jared, who's a good friend of mine now. He's like, yeah, and I did baptize one person, but he hasn't left any. He le but he left the church. But we're still friends. We talk about video games. I'm like, this to me is it's it's it 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 makes it out to be a very human thing. But also, okay, so I have we this issue with Jeff McCullough going on, and some people have been attacking him, and I have Greg Matson on, and I have Luke Hansen come on the program. And I go to them and say, you know, what is the Christian response to uh, criticism? Like, how do you deal with it? Like, you know, when you have an odd against your brother, uh, how do you approach it? And one of the things I said, I said, you know, both you guys believe that Jeff McCall is a Christian, right? And they both, without hesitation, say yes. Okay. Then I go to the dedication of the Sarasota Stake Center here. And Apostle Neil Anderson is there. And him and I make eye contact with each other. And I made a video about this. And he looks at me and I thought, and this place is packed. It's a packed out theory, but he singled me out and I saw him and he saw me. Well, while he was speaking, this is what he says. Folks, I drove by an ev evangelical church on our way here. And I want to tell you all, 
they are our friends. They are not our enemies and we need to work with them. So I get to cut in line. Somebody's like, oh, we'll let you cut because there's this huge line to meet them. And I walk up to him and I said, I just want to thank you so much for saying the kind words about my people that you said. And he looks right at me and he says, I saw you sitting out there. He said, and I saw that you have the right spirit about you. And so I got blessed by an apostle. And this is what's so remarkable is that I keep on hearing this from all of the Latter-day Saints. They'll tell me, I watch your program because at any moment the Holy Ghost could show up. And so, <laughs> so when I'm in this really weird place, right? where I get to see the pearls of the restoration, the things that they won't show outsiders, I get to see and have these conversations. I talked to a, a, a gentleman who works in the church office building. I didn't know it at the time, but we're Zooming. He's He works on the top floor of the church office building. I find out before that, he gives me a profession of faith that's thoroughly orthodox. And so I'm just like, wow. And then, then honestly, Paul, I think what happened to me was what really changed the trajectory for me in many ways was when, and you've done, you've been public about this, is when you came on my program, and we, or, or I came on your program, I, uh, well, either way, and you had talked about how while you were still a Latter-day Saint, you spoke in tongues, and you still speak in tongues. And for me, that was like really eye-opening, because I thought, whoa, this, this, everything, now these lines aren't so, you know, solid. And, 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 and it really, Paul, it really shook me when I heard you tell me that story. And so, guys, this is my observations I'm just making in general. I, I feel like a lot of Latter-day Saints look at me as a fellow brother. And they consider me to be a Christian. And I guess this leads up to the ultimate question. Do you guys consider um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to be a cult? I say, what do you mean? Well, often the word is cult is used. And whatever the description you want to give for a cult, whatever definition you would like to use, would you guys consider the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to be a cult? If you mean cult in the sense that Israel was a cult and you talk about its culture, if you mean in the sense of Jim Jones and they're all going to commit suicide, no. If you mean it in the sense that they have um, seriously deviated from essential Christian doctrine, uh, yes, but it depends on how you understand that nuance. And I appreciate Kyle's earlier words on that. Um, even using the word sometimes puts walls up of deflection rather than opportunities of bridges for reflection. But I can call Israel in scholarship a cult. As a philosopher and comparative religions professor, I can refer to it as a cult. That doesn't mean anything pejorative. Uh, so it depends on how you mean that. Do we think all of the authors of this book, who none of us are merely academic about this, we're all engaged in ministry to LDS people. I mean, one of them even wrote a book before he became an Orthodox Christian here, a biblical defense of Mormonism. Um, we write these books not out of academic interest, but out of love. Because we genuinely think, though there may be LDS people who are saved, that is not on uh, gratis to the LDS Church's historic doctrines, the Book of Mormon, for example. We think that there are severe problems so that it is not 
another testament of Jesus Christ. It is a testament of another Jesus Christ. And it does not have um, the right terms of agreement for the relationship with God that it's advocating. And by that, I mean the Mormon concept of God has more in common with this screen that people are watching in terms of its being finite than it has with the Judeo-Christian or even Islamic concept of God. It is not the same God. You and I may spell mom the same way, but once we start describing it, it's not the same. And it's not the same gospel. And so my heart, like Paul says in Romans 10, uh, for the Israelites, uh, is, is for their salvation. They think they have the knowledge of God, but they don't. And so we don't want to be seen as anti-Mormons. I even hate that label as much as they don't want to be called a cult. I don't want to be called an anti-Mormon or an apostate. I want to be a human being. I want to be someone that they would consider having a dialogue with uh, and not shutting me down because I disagree or because I'm former LDS or because I've written a couple of books on it. The reason I've written the books on it is because I love them and I love their souls and I love the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to have a serious discussion about that. And that's the trajectory of our book. Paul, why don't you uh, turn on your microphone? Is that better? Yep. Okay, sorry about that. Um, I want to jump in here. I think Corey makes some really interesting points, but I kind of want to bring it back to um, kind of my hobby horses, bring people into the heart of a Latter-day Saint. So what is unique about this book is, we, you know, those of us who wrote on the chapters of Preach My Gospel, we all went through the mission experience as a Latter-day Saint. Um, and when you're talking about the word cult, language is difficult language shifts, language changes, and everybody has a context in which they hear words and read words that then forms in their mind what they understand that word to mean. And so when I was a Latter-day Saint and evangelical Christians would say, you know, Mormonism is a cult, um, the way I heard that was Jim Jones, right? Because that's what was in the broader culture as, as what a cult is. And so for me, you know, obviously the walls went up, right? Um, coming out of uh, the LDS faith and becoming an evangelical Christian and, and listening more to those who are using that term and the way that they're using it and the way that they describe as Corey did, how they're using it, um, I see it differently. Um, now, I totally understand it's, it's a word that can make the walls go up immediately, as is now. Uh, Mormon. And so I would point to that as, you know, a way in which culture and, and language is shifting among Latter-day Saints. Uh, I, when I left on my mission in 1997, uh, I remember being in the Missionary Training Center in Provo, Utah, picking up the Ensign Magazine, which is the official magazine of, of the LDS Church, and reading about then President and Prophet Gordon B. Hinckley and his experience as a young missionary and his experience being proud to sing uh, a song that Mormons used to sing. And there I go, there I go using the term Mormons. And I apologize to Latter-day Saints. I don't do it out of right. um, can, yep. trying to be disrespectful. I do it because I grew up in a different Latter-day Saint culture right. than current Latter-day Saints are experiencing. And so, um, and I, that, that's why I'm sharing what I, what I am about the magazine. I read about Gordon B. Hinckley being proud to sing, I am a Mormon boy, which is a, a primary song that the children in, in the Latter-day Saint faith used, used to sing. And so um, 
it's again, you know, we, we've talked about it as part of our podcast uh, when we started, you know, that we, we used to include some language that we would apologize to Latter-day Saints, that they would hear us say Mormons, LDS church, some of these terms that have now become kind of taboo and we don't do it out of disrespect. Uh, it, it's for me, it's definitely out of habit because like I said, I grew up in a different LDS culture and I, and I was in that different LDS culture for 33 years of my life. Uh, I'm only 45 now. So it's not been very long since I've been out of that culture. And it's certainly not been very long since president Nelson gave that edict. So it's hard to, it's hard to change my own language. So again, apologies to Latter-day Saints. I'm not, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I, I appreciate uh, the direction that this, this conversation's going um, because we do have that in our, in our past. I always, always uh, recommend to evangelicals, uh, no matter where you're coming from in your background, to jettison that term, cult, not only because it's uncharitable, um, but because I believe it's simply not true um, because the way we think about cult in the wider society we live in is the Jim Jones, um, Branch Davidian type of a way. And if that's true of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then I think you're going to have a hard time explaining why the church tolerates progressive wings if it's, um, if it's just this homogenistic mind control cult, right? Like why it, it, it can't be because there's a diversity within that, that religion. It's almost too big uh, and it therefore disqualifies itself from, from that kind of a term. Um, I, I mean, it, it, admittedly, too, in, in my past, I'm glad this conversation's coming up because um, I've, in, I've engaged years ago in what I like to call evangelical locker room talk about how we talk about uh, Latter-day Saints. Um, you, you speak about Latter-day Saints one way into their face, and then when it's private or you're on a seminary campus or in a community group in your church, you talk about them a different way. Um, and that we can't do that. It, it's just got to stop. It's not loving neighbor like yourself because you don't want them to talk about evangelicals in the way that we talk about them. Um, and in one small way we can do that is to is to jettison the term cult. Uh, and then another step that we can take is to be intentional about at least reducing or contextualizing or explaining why we're using like terms like Mormon. Um, and I know we, we it, it seems like we're talking about this a lot, but I, I feel like the context of the viewership of uh, Steve's show here. Uh, knowing that so many of the viewers are are, are active Latter-day Saints, I thought it would be fascinating and, and helpful for them to hear this side of that conversation, on, at least from our, from our end. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, so um, the word cult that I've I've had the same thing, same approach you guys have about it doesn't it doesn't even make it's not even how it's definable and defined in so many different ways sociologically, theologically. And, and if it's defined theologically, it's defined, it's defined from a certain point of view, from the person who is, quote, right about things. And so, but here's a, here's a related question. I think that you and Steve, in your original question, you touched on this a little bit. I don't like to have a conversation about whether or not Latter-day Saints are Christians. And that's a conversation evangelicals often have. Are Latter-day Saints Christians? And, and they'll say, of course we are. You know, that the name of Jesus, is it's in the name of our church. And what I've discovered and written on this a lot over the years is that um, we have different definitions of what constitutes a Christian in our different movements. And so rather than arguing about the label, then which which has the potential to create those the, that brick wall going up, you know, 
rather than arguing about the label, let's talk about what we think that label means. And I had this conversation with my brother, who is an active Latter-day Saint. And, and by the end of the conversation, we took we took an hour or so talking about, what do you mean by this? He goes, he goes do you think that we're Christians? And I said, well, let's talk about what that word means. And he said, by the time we were done, he said, well, no, the way you define Christian, I understand what you're saying now. I don't want to be considered a Christian in that sense. So we really got to the point where we really had, um, where meaning was conveyed and not just arguing about the label itself. So can I jump in here? Please do. Um, it, it makes me think of my mom and dad. My mom and dad are, are both really strong personalities. And uh, growing up when they had to do home improvements or something, uh, unless they actually like drew pictures of what each of them meant, they would sit there and argue about it and get all frustrated and bowed up about it, you know, because they were both saying similar things in the same context. But until the specific meaning was actually spelled out, both of them had a very hard time um, engaging in a meaningful conversation. And um, I, I'm not going to jump in on the cult question, but I do just want to. Um, it's kind of a gotcha really, question. <laughs> kind of. Um, I mean, I understand why it's being asked. Um, to me, I. I just want to say why I'm really here. You know, I'm not here because I think that um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a cult. I'm here because, um, you know, as a missionary, I had a dream where I met Jesus and I was, an, I felt like I was an ardent Christian as a LDS missionary. And then I encountered some things about the LDS doctrine that made me question my faith in 2017. And uh, it didn't mean that I suddenly hated the church or wanted to tear the church down. Um, I joined this project because I am passionate about Jesus and I want people to um, meet him. And I hoped by sharing my story that um, current missionaries or whoever reads it would not see someone that's angry or bitter or thinks that, you know, in the context of their culture that Mormons are a cult, I want people to see someone who struggled through a faith transition and um, found Jesus Christ in uh, a meaningful way. And I, I think too often, um, especially uh, in these kinds of conversations that we're having, we get tied up in the nuances. Um, you know, I could, I could talk all day about, um, you know, what the symbol of the LDS church is supposed to be and how, you know, if missionaries are wearing crosses, they're not really following the, uh, the precedent that's been set before. And maybe they're kind of, you know, trying to assimilate into whatever culture they're in. But in the end, that matters less than what's the message that we're putting out there. And this book is not about being antagonistic to uh, members of the church. It's about trying to have constructive conversations where we've written out the context of what we mean by certain things. And we try to help evangelicals understand um, the LDS mind frame and where they're coming from and have a framework wherein they can build constructive conversations. Oh, very thoughtful. I thought this would be thoughtful. You know, it's, it's interesting because 
you know, I, I am kind of a unicorn. I acknowledge that. And I've had a different faith <laughs> journey and everything like that. And I've never actually never formally joined a church. I've been baptized into the church, but I never, I never as a kid even believed in church membership. So I never actually joined a church, but I attend many, many churches and throughout my life. And I kind of have this gauge that I go by. And Jesus told us, you'll know them by their fruits. Right. And I just, I, this is the approach I take. If somebody goes to me and says, I'm a Christian, with whatever group they're coming from, doesn't matter to me. Say, I'm a Christian. I just say, okay, if I see the fruits, that will show me that you're a Christian. If I don't see any fruits, that will also show me something too. And I often see the fruits from Latter-day Saints. I often, from Christians, don't see any fruits. I live in a Christian community, and there are people that I don't see any fruits. I also engage some Christian apologists who attack, 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 attack me. Right. Uh, use half-truths. Spread lies about me. Uh, say that I'm saying things I didn't say. Uh, accusing me of manipulating things. And I'm like, and these people are saying this behind my back. And these are so-called Christian apologists who are you know, supposedly, these are the people that are engaging the restoration. Right. And they, and I get to see this hatred directed towards me. And now I'm like, oh, the Lord's showing me. I'm being blessed by this because I get to see that hatred and anger that they're throwing at me. That's what Latter-day Saints are seeing from a lot right. of these people. And so I think it's really important that we be sensitive to how we uh, approach this. Because when those people are going to the general conference or a new temple is being built or opened up, and you got these people wearing temple garments or wearing these, holding these vile, unchristian signs. And these poor folk, they're out there and they're walking into the temple or they're going to the general conference dressed up because they, they, they're, 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 they're being prepared to be blessed by, in their mind, blessed by their uh, apostles. Sure. And they see that and they go and they see that and they're like, well, if that's what Christianity is, or if that's what evangelical Christianity is, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Right. So I, I just want to say, I want, we need a call for repentance. For 200 years now, the evangelicals have been hating and spreading lies about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Some of the criticism, of course, is valid. And we have differences. Agreed. And we acknowledge this and we have these conversations. But we are now on the cusp of the 200th anniversary of the announcement of the coming forth of the plates. Over the course of the next seven years, important uh, landmarks will happen. Uh, leading up to April 6, 2030, will be the 200th anniversary of the church. Personally, I believe that God placed me here to faci facilitate a different conversation with the restoration. So I just want to be out there. I said, for those of you who've been critical of me and have taken my stuff out of context and are uh, showing clips of me or saying, and it's just not fair, okay? And it's unchristian. And the fact that you won't come and talk to me and, and do a Zoom with me, and I've invited somebody for two years now asking them to come and do a Zoom with me, I consider it, I, 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 we need repentance here for all of us, all of us, including myself, for things that I said in the past. Even Jeff McCullough, he said things in the past about Mormonism that he's repented for. I think it's really important that we, we, we also, also examine ourselves and our hearts. And I think, Kyle, one of the most beautiful things you ever said on Gospel Tangents, one of the leading Mormon podcasts, is... He's, you had made the comment, he said, you know, a lot of Christians use the Jesus who turned over the tables in the temple as their model of, hey, you know, he was a fighter and he did this and all this kind of stuff. He said, but you made a great point, Kyle. He said, Jesus turned over the, te uh, the, the tables in the temple, but he didn't do it in Sumeria. Maybe talk about that. Yeah, so the, the idea there is when the Jesus Samaritans. was angry, 
with the Samaritans, yeah. There were two temples, obviously. There was the temple in Samaria and the temple in Jerusalem. And when Jesus overthrew the, the tables, he didn't go to the one in Samaria where they had aberrant or heterodox beliefs about God and the law and salvation and identity. Uh, he went to Jerusalem, which is, you know, where the Jews at the time believed they had orthodoxy and truth. And so the idea behind that is like, in the analogy, the loose analogy, um, if evangelicalism is Jerusalem and our headquarters is in Jerusalem and Latter-day Saints are at Samaria and they have their headquarters in Salt Lake, um, ought we not reserve the, the harshest criticism for ourselves in constantly coming back to a, a, re, a, a repentant posture so that when we do encounter those from Samaria, it's uh, gentle and kind uh, and yet expressive of truth. I'm thinking of John chapter four, the woman at the well, of course. Um, and that's, I, I think that would be the preferred approach. I think that's what Jesus has modeled um, for us. Um, you, you can disagree. I just think that's, um, that's where I land. You know, I think historically there has been a lot of boundary management on both sides. Um, that you can look to and point to, uh, you know, you can point to, and this, this isn't what about ism, but you can point to statements by Brigham Young and early other early LDS leaders, um, that are very stridently anti-Christian and very, uh, very straightforwardly trying to set apart the LDS movement from the Christianity of their day. Um, and so, uh, a call for repentance, a call for apologies, I think can go both directions. I think it's, I think it's valid to call for better dialogue from both sides. Um, and uh, I think, you know, the, the overall intent of our book uh, and my intent in joining on and writing a chapter was to do that. Um, it's a, it's an interesting perspective to be someone who has been in both camps um, and still because of family connections and, and friendship connections that I've had from my very earliest years, uh, still in some ways have a foot in both camps. Um, even though I'm, I'm firmly a Christian and, and, and involved in evangelical Christianity, I have family members and friends that I love who are Latter-day Saints, and they need to know that I love them. Um, and so it's, it's a difficult conversation to have for a lot of the reasons that we've um, we've kind of spelled out today. Um, but again, I would just encourage Latter-day Saints to try to hear our hearts. Um, because as others have said, we do love you. Um, because we love who we used to be, right? Um, we all have been uh, drawn to Jesus Christ by the Father. Um, John 6 makes it clear that that's something that has to happen for you to be a Christ follower. Uh, you are drawn by the Father to the Son. That process for me didn't start in 2010 when I left the LDS Church. It started long before that, that the Father was drawing me and, and working in my life. And so um, I just want to hear, I just want Latter-day Saints to hear that we love them. And I want my message to evangelicals to be, you know, others have talked about um, hospitality and how important hospitality is to Latter-day Saint missionaries. Um, I was on Ross's podcast a few weeks ago, uh, and you know, if you listen to that episode, you'll hear me talk about um, some of the things that uh, my other L uh, LDS missionary friends experienced in their missions. Um, when I was in in Hungary uh, between 1997 and 1999, uh, there were you know, Hungary is majority Catholic, 
And so uh, we used to get what we called the double back L uh, when we would knock on people's door. They, they'd say, I, I was born Catholic. I'm going to, I'm Catholic now. I'm going to die Catholic. Right. And then they would slam the door in our face. Um, and so, you know, Mormon missionaries can, can point to those types of experiences of having the doors slammed in their faces as, as people being uncharitable towards them. And I get it. It hurts. It's not, it's not fun when you're out trying to share what you think is the truth with people and, and you get a door slammed in your face. And so, you know, I understand both sides and, and just would call for, for charity all around. Amen. Anybody else? Yeah. Wanna... yeah sorry. I, I felt like that's something that I tried to focus on as well um, in the chapter that I wrote. Um, just tried to frame it by, through my own experience of being a missionary. Um, you know, I was stateside, so I was in North Carolina, but I can still remember, um, you know, we had $120 a month for groceries. Um, you know, I think I spend three to four times that now with four kids, you know, <laughs> uh, in a week. And, uh, so you're out there, you're biking around every day, you know, you're in the hot sun, you're wearing a you know, a collared shirt, slacks and a tie, and it's tough. And you're getting door slammed in your faces or people, you know, are bringing up what at the time I would have called anti-Mormon doctrines, you know, and trying to sling them at you in an angry way. It's tough life. And these people have chosen to be there. And I think that's what a lot of evangelicals um, forget is that not only are they young, but they chose to be there. And so they believe enough to try and engage in a meaningful way. And so to be met with, um, you know, anger and sometimes cruelty. Um, I mean, I had uh, like a sealed full can of Mountain Dew chucked at my head from a car that was going 50 miles an hour, you know, missed my head by that much, you know, really could have killed me, you know, when I was riding my bike. Um, you know, we had members who graciously just kept feeding us, you know, um, even though they were sometimes college students with two kids and I'm sure they had limited income too, you know, but, um, yeah, we've, we've got to remember that these people chose to be here. They chose to be out of the mission field and, um, engaging them in an antagonistic way is not productive. Um, you know, if we can show kindness and love. And I think we try to do that by helping people understand the mind frame of a missionary and the culture uh, that these people are coming from. Um, you're gonna be able to reach them hopefully in more meaningful ways and actually have conversations instead of you know having something screamed at you on the street. Yeah. And I would add that, you know, you can tell the truth without love, but you cannot love without telling the truth. And yeah. if we love the LDS people and we think that they are deviating from essential doctrines about Christ and salvation and God, then to stand by and say nothing, we're just hypocrites. Right. That's not that's, love. That's, I need to repent from saying nothing. Love is consistent in addressing tough issues and having dialogue that we want to generate more light than heat, but let's face it, last time you touched a light bulb, it was hot. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is a person's heart. This is their culture. This is their life. Families are forever. 
It's about their families. But there is something bigger too, and that is the truth. We're supposed to express ourselves in love, but supposed to express the truth. One of the areas that, that I've contributed to the dialogue on is, um, and I, I started with this in my dissertation work on the knowledge of God from Aristotle to Moses Maimonides to Thomas Aquinas. And then always in the back of my mind had in, in mind uh, my Mormon past uh, with the testimony. And that's a form of epistemology or a theory of knowledge, something that most LDS people are, are sought to strive after, seek to have a testimony. Uh, deploy testimony often, uh, put it in, in positions on the offensive to try to win over investigators or prospective converts. On the defensive, rely back, lean back on your testimony. But I want LDS people in the first missionary discussion, which is designed to create the need for a living prophet by showing the investigator that there's something missing from everybody outside of the restoration. I want the LDS person to think that me or the Christian person reading our book is now in the same position, in a sense, that Joseph Smith was in when he went into the grove and he had all these different Christian denominations, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, vying for his uh, allegiance to their movement. I want our people that are reading this and loving the LDS missionary and people to communicate to them that we are very much in the same situation now. The LDS missionary has approached us and told us that all other churches are missing something significant, but that their restored version is the truth. But now I wanna say, well, which restoration movement? Which one true church is the one true, one true church? Because in fact, there have been over 400, according to LDS authors in Scattering of the Saints, beginning with my family as part of the very first splinter group. And so I often, uh, when I focus on testimony and I, I value and I want to recommend uh, people bear testimony, and, and that's part of our, our understanding of what does it mean to know God, not know about God, but to know God. I often uh, challenge the LDS missionary when I talk with him or her to think about the case where Joseph Smith was there considering the various Christian denominations. And now we're here and we're thinking about the fundamentalist uh, representatives of their restoration movement with prophets and apostles. We're thinking about the community of Christ that splintered off with Joseph Smith's first wife and his firstborn, whose last name of Smith stayed in the presidency almost until a, dec or a generation ago because there was no male heir. I want them to consider the fact that we are now saying, well, which one is true? After praying Moroni 10 verse 4 and praying over the Book of Mormon, all of those representatives from those different LDS, not LDS, Mormon restorationist sects think that their church is true and they get teary eyed and they're very, very sincere in their beliefs. Does that mean, I say to the LDS missionary, that all of those other um, ones that are pretending to have the proper priestly authority are lying? Are we judging them as liars? No, 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 don't judge. But you are saying that they're wrong, yes. And they're deceived, yes. Which means that someone praying a prayer from Moroni 10 verse four might be operating in deception without knowing it. How do you know you're not the one? 
And then I share my Christian testimony about how Jesus has changed my life. And I read to them a Bible passage that uses the word testimony more than anywhere else in the scriptures. In 1 John 5, 9 through 13, it says, and this is in ESV, same with the NIV, King James uses uh, the word witness. It's the same Greek word. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. And here it is. This is the testimony. Do we have it or do we not? That God has given us, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son, present tense, has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And I bear testimony that I know that I will spend eternity with my heavenly father because my trust, my, my trust is entirely in Jesus. Jesus is enough. He said, it is finished. And if someone has a testimony that contradicts that, then our subjective testimony is one thing. Does it align with the objective testimony of scripture? We want to communicate to the LDS people that we love them. We're writing this book. We wrote this book because we love them, not because we hate them. If we hated them, we would say nothing and just let them go off to a destiny that we think is not fun. We do it because we love them. You know, I just I, I think that was I'm really glad you shared that, Corey. But I also think this is part of my my call for repentance, because when we think about this, the response that Joseph Smith was having to the other churches, whether it's in the first vision or it's a development, the theological development develops later on, is that he was born in a world in which all these competing Christian sects were claiming to be the one true church. Where the Presbyterian would go and say, well, Alvin's in hell because he wasn't baptized. And we have all these groups that, you know, this, this is very serious times where everybody's making truth claims. Then you have the Campbellites making their case that they were the one true church. And so you have all these groups that were, that, that was the milieu that he was born into. So we have to realize that a lot of the language that, that the, Restor, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would later be called, they were just aping a lot of what we were doing in one sense. So, so, so that's where the damage is, is that it, I believe that because you had all these groups and it, like back in the day, I mean, I, look, I used to belong to uh, groups that considered anybody that was Armenian to be uh, of the devil because they were hard, you know, right-wing Calvinists. And that would be kind of similar to how Presbyterianism would have maybe viewed Methodism at the time. So I think that that's really important to also understand the context of what they were saying, and also realize that we've seen an evolution with the church that's happened over the course of the last 200 years. So I do, so I do think that a lot, of, a lot of things that we can criticize the church for is as a result of error on our part as well. Maybe speak to that. What do you think, Kyle? As far as the ecumenism of Catholic Christianity and its uh, shortcomings in the early 20th century New York, I mean, what what can you say? That's it's been like that since the beginning. Um, Paul, even I think he's when he's speaking to the Church of Corinth, he said, "Look, there there must be factions among you in order to prove uh, who, who is genuine and." Uh, cause people to have self-reflection. Um, I come from the I come from the opinion in the camp that uh, because I'm a Protestant through and through in sola scriptura, 
uh, if you're Methodist or Presbyterian, uh, Reformed, Calvinist, Baptist, Arminian, great. Do, can we agree on the central and core issues? Here? Exactly. And that's, and that's where, what it's become. That's, now where, that, that's what evangelicalism has evolved into, where now it's much more broader and we don't we don't necessarily say, well, now you get baptized in this church or anything like that. We've, we've evolved, but so has, so we, I just think that that's important just to understand the context of, of what the church was like the evangelical church in, in, in Joseph Smith's time was a lot different than the evangelical church that exists today, and that the restoration is a response to that particular church. And so we also have to realize that there's this 200-year conversation going on. And guys, you know what? This was meant a lot longer than I expected. But I felt, actually, I, fe I feel really feel like we had a productive conversation here today. Um, and I, I want the Latter-day Saint audience to chime in. What do you think? You know about this conversation you get to hear a bunch of evangelicals get together and talk about your church and i know your ear all your ears are burning probably right now ross i i just want to thank you so much for helping put this together and maybe uh, do you have any final final words you'd like to say no i i think you know we're used to doing this kind of thing in our own house where we're promoting the book to evangelicals and so it's been really enriching and really encouraging to be able to come and think about how other people might be viewing it us and viewing what our project is. And so hopefully we've conveyed uh, something that is meaningful to your audience, Steve. And, um, and, and I will have to say, this is America. So buy the book, go buy the book. <laughs> uh, Corey, you want us any final words on your part? I, I don't think so. I, I just, uh, I would echo what Ross has said. Okay and the others here, um, the intent of the book, and you can see it, it's a blend of affective and cognitive. I think it accurately represents the sociology, psychology, and theology uh, that we see in uh, our disagreements and agreements with LDS people. And our sole motivation for it is the same motivation of why there are LDS missionaries. And that is because they believe they have the truth. We believe we have the truth and that they're lost. Uh, they believe that we're lost. So it's not one place, you know, coming from an angle, attacking another. The first missionary discussion sets the ground for the restoration. There's a need because there is a loss. We're simply saying we're not lost. We have Jesus. Jesus said it is finished and we trust him and we love you and we want to have dialogue. Paul and then Joel. Yeah, I, I think I would just say, you know, the theologies that we each hold individually affect our lives, affect how we think about things. Um, and that's true of me as a Christian. It's true of my family members and friends as, as Latter-day Saints. Um, when my mom was near the end of her life, uh, she passed away in 2015. She and I used to have some deep conversations about religion. She was a staunch Latter-day Saint, had done family history work all of her life. Uh, that's what she went to school for at BYU, so she could help people find their family members and, and take them to the temples to do work on their behalf, ordinances on their behalf. But we would have very deep conversations. And, you know, one thing that she shared with me multiple times before she passed is was that she wasn't sure that she had done enough to make it to the celestial kingdom. And that statement that she made belies, you know, the, the effect of LDS theology on, on individuals. They feel like it's on them. And Corey quoted the Bible, you know, he who has the son has life. It's not a question. It's a fact. And that's our message to the Latter-day Saints. Yo. Um, yeah, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't 
gonna say this, but what everyone else has said kind of took me on this path. Uh, yeah, yeah. Again, Second Nephi, we know that we are saved after all that we can do, um, and all we're trying to say is that um, you can rest in the work of Jesus Christ, His gift to you of His death and His suffering for your sins is sufficient. You don't need anything else. And um, to me, you know, that's that's the entire thrust of the book is, hey, you got people out there that this is their culture. This is what they believe. And they're out there and they're dedicated to this. And it's more complex than just, hey, you need to believe in Jesus and let all this other religiosity and, you know, anything else that people try to, you know, frame it as negatively you need to let all that go and just believe in Jesus is a lot more complex than that. And there needs to be good engagement and, you know, charity, love and kindness in the way that uh, these people are engaged. Well, Kyle, uh, I thought this was a very instructive conversation. Um, and I think this will be good for our, both our evangelical and Latter-day Saint audience. And also those who are looking from the outside of those two groups as well. Uh, Kyle, do you have any final words you'd like to say? Uh, just a brief observation, the way that um, the contributors kind of landed the plane was um, a thread that I saw throughout the book from beginning towards the end of uh, emphasizing grace. Um, that is one of the doctrines that are very precious to evangelicals historically, along with um, faith in Christ alone. Um, and so anytime I hear grace alone by faith alone, and Christ alone, uh, I am. I'm happy to be reminded that that is what I need personally. So thanks guys. Well, gentlemen, thank you all for coming on the program today. This was really an awesome conversation. Remember the book is response, uh, responding to the Mormon missionary message. I'll have a link in the description for those of you who'd like to order the book. Also, uh, just remember, uh, mormonbookreviews.com is our merch store where we have hats, hot chocolate mugs, mouse pads, uh, seat covers for your car, you name it, it's in there. Also, for those of you who'd like to financially support the channel, we'll have links to Patreon, Venmo, as well as PayPal. Uh, and I do want to thank everybody who is contributing to the channel. Also a reminder, don't forget to like and subscribe and hit the like button and hit the bell so that you'll be reminded when a new episode comes out. But remember, the most important thing is this, folks. Remember, all the voices of the restoration will be heard here on Mormon Book Reviews. Okay, uh, hit stop. Apparently,